Let's talk about the second noble truth. The truth of the cause of suffering. So, sometimes, sometimes it's stated as desire is the cause of suffering. And interestingly enough, some people interpret that to mean, oh, well, desire is a bad thing, and therefore I'm punished for desiring, so that's why suffering happens to me. <laughs> and that's not what it means. A, a better word is craving, tana. Um, when we say craving, we mean the desire to either experience something that's pleasant, mentally or physically, or if we're already experiencing some kind of pleasure, to continue that pleasure, or if it's passed away, to reobtain that. So it has the desire aspect to it, the wanting grasping. But the other aspect of craving is the aversion of putting away. If something hurts, we want it to stop hurting, whether it's a physical hurt or a mental hurt. Right? Um, if it's already stopped hurting, we want to keep it from ever hurting again. If it's still hurting, we want it to hurt less or the hurt to go away. And this is all craving. And what it comes down to in its essence is the mind enters into a state where it wants things to be different than the way they are. See that? It wants, it's rejecting reality. And So when there is when there is a craving in either the form of desire or aversion, it triggers the mind to generate this strong sense of dissatisfaction, which will motivate us to go out and do something and change the way things are. Right? And that's not so bad when there's something that you can go and do to change the way things are. I mean, it's still not it, it's still a kind of suffering. It's still, if, if it's something that's unpleasant that's happening to you, it makes it even more unpleasant to motivate you to go and take some action. But <coughs> at least if there's something you can do about it that's within reason, then you can do that thing and maybe it will either obtain you the pleasure that you seek or, or remove the pain that you experience. Of course, this mechanism in our minds does not discriminate between situations in which you can do something and situations in which you can't. Anytime your mind enters into the state of rejecting what is, another part of the mind floods the mind as a whole with this feeling of dissatisfaction. It could be minor dissatisfaction could be major dissatisfaction, it could be extreme grief, suffering, and so forth. But it all has the same thing in common. It all comes down to the same thing. 
is you as an entity are rejecting the reality that is. And you have this built-in mechanism that makes you experience suffering until you do something to change it. And if you can't do something to change it, then you just keep on experiencing suffering. So that's what it means to say craving is the cause of suffering. And I want you to notice that one of the ways that we could translate dukkha is as dissatisfaction or unsatisfactoriness. And what does it mean to reject the way things are? It means to be dissatisfied. So these two, they are different, but they are so closely intertwined that sometimes it's really hard to distinguish between them. It's hard to distinguish the, the difference. And as a result of this, we sometimes don't realize we don't recognize that the pursuit of pleasure actually is suffering. It's only when we put a huge amount of effort into getting what we want and we're thwarted, then we feel that it's suffering. But the fact is that as soon as we started wanting whatever it is we wanted, we were experiencing a subtle degree of suffering. And if we'd gotten it, then it would have gone away for a brief period of time, and then some part of my mind would have recognized that hey, this isn't going to last, and so we start trying to hold on to it, and so then we start suffering again. So whenever there is, whenever there is craving, there is some degree of suffering, because the two are essentially synonymous. You all, the only reason craving is present is because you want something that is not, or you want something that is to cease. And the state of, and that state of wanting is in itself the suffering. And so the suffering, the dissatisfaction is always going to be there. Maybe subtle, it may be extreme, maybe anywhere in between. But where there is craving, there is suffering. Does this make sense to you? Does anybody hear that this doesn't make sense to you? More of a question of clarification. Um, so I've noticed that sometimes there's like, well, first let me just call it a desire, desire for something. And, um, and sometimes it arises, and it's less of a kind of like craving and more of like, oh, wouldn't that be nice? Maybe even like a fantasy or daydream, you know? And there's like a certain pleasantness to that experience, of that arising. It's like just that imagining it. It's like, oh, that would be so great. And sometimes that then leads to this like, I need this kind of clenching. And sometimes it doesn't, and it's just there in a very kind of pleasant way. So my question is, um, are there different components of this where like one's cool and one's not in the sense of creating suffering? Or is it just that even in the pleasant daydream kind of aspect of desire, there's still a very subtle piece of suffering that I'm not quite picking up on? Well, in some cases there might be some subtle aspect of suffering. Uh, and in some cases also too, although there may not be suffering in the moment, you're creating the seeds for future suffering that come to those. But let's just back up a little bit here. Now, a friend of yours might experience some great good fortune. And you would feel really happy for them. Or 
a friend of yours might be in a position where they might possibly experience great good fortune, and you might experience a, a, a profound wish that this would happen. I hope it turns out. Now, that's not quite the same thing. The craving we're talking about, the word that we translate as craving, tana, actually means thirst. It is self-centered, self-oriented, and it is a kind of dissatisfaction that is, com is, is essentially compulsive. It's not entertained lightly up here. It's coming from down here as a compulsion. You know, thirst. You you want some water, and you want this parched feeling in your throat to go away. You want it to stop. And so, there's a di there are different dimensions of this. So, to to hope that things turn out well for your friend, just like being happy that they have if they do, is not the same thing. It doesn't have that same self, and it doesn't. There's no compulsion in there. It's, there's no drive. And the affective quality that you experience as a result of wishing your friend well is actually it's going to make you feel pleasure rather than feel pain. So it's different in that way. Some kinds of fantasies are similar to that. Um, the, the you now may hold the wish that some future you experiences some reward. And that can be held in that same very light and, and gentle way. Um, to the degree that it's not, to the degree that when you hold this fantasy, that you feel down there something tightens up and wants to do something about it, it's a very mild form of suffering, but it's suffering. Also, to the degree that you repeat that, you are building up within you a stronger and stronger attachment to whatever this is that you're fantasizing about. And I know everybody in this room has had that experience many times, right? Until it started out as a nice thought, but then it comes as a painful need. And if it's a need that you recognize can never be satisfied, it's a really unpleasant need. So it, it, can, it can definitely become the kind of craving that leads to suffering. But yeah, that, that's another problem with the word desire, is that when we're talking about desire as a cause of suffering, we're talking about the compulsive, self-oriented drive. And it can be very confusing because if we say desire is the cause of all suffering and we'd all be better off without desire and somebody always says, what about the desire to become awakened? I like that. What about the desire for my kids to be well and healthy or the desire for this or the desire for that? Um, in the Pali language, there is a distinction between tana which is the kind of craving that we're talking about here is the cause of, of suffering. And uh, uh, chana, chana is, that's, that would be your, your desire for enlightenment. That would be your desire for the well-being for other people. That would be your desire for a world that lives in harmony. 
course, it might be mingled with a few other things, but if, if I lived in a world in harmony, my problems would go away. But, you know, nevertheless, there is this difference. It is, it is a very wholesome, it is a very positive, uh, well-wishing, or, you know, it, 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 it's, a, uh, it's, it's a wishing that is not the kind of compulsive desire, of a pain-producing desire, okay? Yes? Um, are, you, are you going to, at some point, deal with the phenomenon in Western society of materialism and the constantly proliferating list of things that we gotta have um, and how to, if the, if the Dharma is going to take root in Western society, it seems to me it has to deal with that yes. materialism. Uh, if we get through everything I want to get through this weekend, we'll cover that in detail. But remember, the Buddha spent, I think, five days and nights on the first noble truth, and it's only 10, 50. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, this has to do with the third truth, with the... Uh, with overcoming the root of, of craving. The third truth is that truth is that a complete cessation of, craving, of, of, of suffering is possible because a complete cessation of suffering is possible. But the cessation of, did I say that right? Anyway, suffering is possible because craving can be overcome. But that is only possible because the cause of the craving itself needs to be overcome, which is the delusion. And our grasping after material things as a source of happiness is a very important part of the delusion. Our grasping after anything external to ourselves as a source of happiness is a very important part of the illusion. So we will be talking about that. Anyway, there's a, a little bit of subtlety to this, but I think you can penetrate it pretty easily, that if you understand what we mean by craving, you can look in yourself and you can affirm that that craving, craving and suffering are connected in this way. That even when there's a little bit of craving, there tends to be either suffering that you are consciously aware of in the moment, or else it's planting the seeds for suffering that is going to come. And, uh, so my question is, is, is everybody clear on that? Makes sense? Do, are we ready to go on beyond that? Yeah. What are the two words in Pali, the craving and Chanda. desire? Chanda is the craving. Uh, oh, the two words, okay, the words are tanha. Tanha is the unwholesome craving. That's desire, which includes desire for something in its self-centered and grasping sense. And the other is Chanda. And chanta is, that is a wish. It's a recognition that things could be in a good way and a wish that they would be. And it even generates a willingness to make effort to make that happen. But without the, the suffer, suffering producing attachment and compulsion. Yeah. Yeah. 
Bruce, could you use the sentence, um, I can't be happy until fill in the blank, or I can't be happy unless fill in the blank. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. As, a, as yeah. whatever you want to put in those two blanks, there's a reason why I can't be happy right now. Yes, that's right. That's that's the kind of story that we tell ourselves. That the attachment to material, material thing. You know, I'll be happy when I have this. Yeah. And what you don't realize is, is I'm making myself not happy until that happens. Um, just a question. It seems to me that what you said is describable as yet another one of these spectrum situations where on one end of the spectrum the craving you are experiencing is for yourself and on the other end of the spectrum is the craving for positive things for someone else. Okay. Is that a reasonably accurate... Uh, well, actually you've touched on a very subtle point here. It appears to be a spectrum, but in fact it's not. So the two things are distinctly different. Because, see, when you wish something, some, when you wish well for another as other, that is completely and, and purely wholesome and produces no suffering at all. But when you wish someone else well as an extension of yourself, then that's that other kind of, of craving. You know, uh, you, you want good things for your children, right? But that's not really quite as selfless as, you know, if we reflect a little bit, there's a lot of our own attachment in that. You know? Why do you want your child to do well in this particular way? Even when sometimes your child really doesn't want to, they'd much rather try to do well in this other way. It's because you are seeing them as a projection of yourself. So you're wanting something for yourself. To the degree that that's present, then you have, you know, that's the unwholesome suffering producing craving. Now, you can, in one and the same moment, have both of those. And so you've got a mixture. You've got oil and water, and they're shaken up, so it's hard to tell one part from the other. But they're all mixed together. But they're still two distinct things. And, um, yeah, so it appears that they're on a spectrum because they can be mixed. Because any, any, any well-wishing for others or any aspiration that is of a noble sort can also be mixed with a self-centered craving. That make sense to you? But it's, uh, they are like oil and water. They are different. They're not on a spectrum. They're two distinctly different things. Chanda and Panha are not two ends of a spectrum. So I'm glad you brought that up, subtle point up, so that we can clarify that. So. Okay. Any other questions about what we talked about here so far? Then let's go on with, there is another very important way in which craving is the cause of suffering. We go through our lives, and you realize, you, you do realize this more and more as you practice, as your mindfulness uh, and your clear comprehension improves, 
you realize more and more that you're doing and saying things constantly out of craving. As a matter of fact, you may experience a bit of a shock at some point in your spiritual career when it when the load of that hits you that my entire life everything I've been doing and saying has been entirely self-centered and selfish. It's because I wanted something or I wanted to avoid something else. Now, if we examine the things that we do and say for this reason, and we're honest with ourselves, we start to notice that a lot of the, the, in order to obtain the gratification that we're seeking, a lot of the things that we do and say have impacts on other people that are negative, that cause not just other people, other beings of all sorts, that are creating some degree of harm, some degree of pain, contributing to some degree of suffering. You see that that's true? And of course, you look at the world, there is so much suffering in this world that is unnecessary, that doesn't need to be there. So much pain that doesn't need to be there. And what is the cause of all of this completely unnecessary and ultimately avoidable pain in the world? What is the cause of it? Yeah. Tana. Tana. Craving. Somebody, it, it is fear. Fear is, is you're, you're wanting to avoid what you're going to see as painful. It is greed. It is lust. It is all of these other things. So, you know, even being the wonderful, nice people that we are, we know we do hurt others and we know we hurt other beings. But we also know that in the world at large, craving has gotten way out of control. And that there are individual persons who, for their own satisfaction and reward, will do things that inflict just enormous amounts of misery on countless other beings. And it's happening all the time. So we live in a world where there's so much pain and suffering that doesn't need to be there. Now, you might say, does any pain and suffering need to be there? Could we have a world with no pain and suffering? And maybe you hope that I'm going to say yes, but I'm not. It's not possible. It is not possible. Remember, pain is inevitable. And so long as there are sentient beings ruled by craving, when they experience pain, they are going to experience suffering. And they're also going to experience other kinds of suffering that are not related to pain. So, if we imagine things as perfectly as we can, we still have a world in which there's pain and suffering. So let's think of that as the unavoidable pain and suffering. In a sense, the necessary pain and suffering. In the sense that beings like ourselves can't live without that. Now, we, yes... You know, in the time of the Buddha, there was another great teacher named Mahavira. And there's a lot of evidence that the Buddha spent a little bit of time studying with him. 
and uh, his followers uh, today are called the Jains. At the time of the Buddha, there was a, a sizable number of these among the ascetic wanderers, and they were dedicated to not causing any pain and suffering at all. This was, this was their aspiration. So they carried with them a filter, and they wouldn't drink a mouthful of water until they filtered it so that there weren't any tiny insects or microorganisms that would be destroyed when they drank the water. They put pieces of cloth over their face so that when they breathed, the same thing. They wouldn't breathe in tiny insects or other microorganisms. And they carried a little broom with them, and before they replaced their foot, each step, they would sweep the spot so that there wouldn't be anything that they would step on and crush. No ants, mites, anything like that. And they did the best that they could, but in that school of thought, they too realized it's impossible for organisms like us to live without causing some degree of pain and suffering. No matter how carefully you sweep the ground before every step, you know, no matter if you filter the water and filter the air, no matter how careful you are about what you eat, you're still going to cause some pain and suffering. Right? And they took they took one they, they took this to one extreme, whereas the Buddha said, let's avoid that extreme, and he found a middle path. The extreme that they took it to was that the highest spiritual practice possible was to sit down in this spot and not move and not drink and not eat until you die. Because that is the only way that you could <clears throat> cease to cause pain and suffering to other beings. And the, the Buddha felt like that was too extreme. <laughs> so instead, uh, instead what we have to do is to recognize that it is the nature of life. Life feeds on life, life competes with other life for resources, uh, even taking up space, you know, uh, you know, when we step on an ant, it's because uh, we needed the space and the ant had the space, so we squish the ant into a smaller space. <laughs> That's the space we need. Right? So, you know, it's just, it's, it's the way things are. So what, what can you do? You can, you can make it your purpose to try your very best to be aware of the impact of what you do. And we'll talk about that. That becomes a very powerful practice. That's really what the practice of virtue is about, what it's based on. But anyway, back to the second truth. Craving is the cause of our own individual suffering, and it also causes us to act in a way that we cause more suffering than need be. There's a lot of unnecessary and otherwise avoidable suffering that we cause it's purely as a result of our craving. Okay. So craving is the cause of suffering. Now, 
this is, you, you can agree with me because this sounds reasonable. It seems like everybody does. It is reasonable. It's logical. But to really be of use to you, it needs to be something that you have some direct experience of. And this is an important part when the Buddha taught the second truth. As a part of it, he taught this, the practice of identifying the craving that is the cause of your suffering and discovering that it is the cause of your suffering by letting go of it. If you can let go of it for a moment, the suffering will go away. A lot of you probably already know this, but it's something that deep down in your psyche, this isn't known and understood. And the more you experience that, the more deeply it will be known and understood. And the more it will shape your experience and the way you see the world. So it's something that you need to you need to affirm, even though everything I've said makes sense, even though you can study the handout, study the sutras, and you know, nod your head and say, yep, I can see this is absolutely true. You need to have that direct experience that it's true. You need to practice discovering the craving, the resistance, the rejection that is causing your suffering in the moment, and practice letting go of it just so that you can verify that, yes, for the however long I'm able to let go of it, the suffering goes away. A very important practice. Now, we talked about the relationship between pain and suffering. And as I said, Shenzhen likes to express this, that pain times resistance equals suffering. And in mathematics, if you multiply by zero, you get zero, right? So that means if there were no resistance to the pain, if Shenzhen's right, there should be no suffering. It's not just Shenzhen, you know, if the Buddha's right. If what we're talking about is right, there should essentially be no suffering. And this is what, this is what you, what I want you to discover. Now, what you're going to find, the pain is an easy one to work with. Because we know what the craving is right away. We want the, cra the craving is for the pain not to be there, right? We don't have to look. And so pain is an easy one to work with. And it can teach you so very much. As a matter of fact, one of the wonderful gifts is that when you sit in meditation, you go through a period where there's a lot of pain associated with sitting. And this is the opportunity for you to really come to understand the first and second truths by dealing with pain. To find that how much suffering pain causes you is directly proportional to how much you resist it. And that when you accept the pain and cease to resist it, there is no suffering. There's just an unpleasant sensation. So, well, it sounds almost mystical, but it's not. It's something that's really concrete, real, that we can all experience, and that you need to experience in practice. And it will really make this solid and clear to you. So, now, I'd, I'd like you to 
also do this in the rest of your life. If you take it as if what the Buddha says is true, and I need to find it for myself, if what the Buddha says is true, any time I become consciously aware that I'm experiencing suffering, there must be some craving that is the cause of it. If he's telling the truth. Not just sometimes, but always, it must always be true. So therefore, if I can look in, and if I can identify the craving, if I can find what there is about the reality of this moment that I am resisting and rejecting, then I will identify the cause of my suffering in this moment. And that if I can let go of that and accept what is, then my suffering should cease. And that's, that's the thing that you need to do. Now what you are going to discover is that initially, like I said, pain's an easy one. You always know what the craving is there. The other kinds of suffering you experience is not going to be so obvious, and you're not always going to be able to figure it out, or what you think you figured out isn't necessarily going to be the, the right thing. But you'll get better at it. You'll get better and better mm -hmm. at it recognizing the craving that is behind the suffering that you feel. You won't always succeed in letting go of it. Sometimes the mind just grasps so strongly onto something that you, you, you can't interrupt it even for a moment. But many times you will. And every time you do, every time you let go of it, you will discover the truth of this. That that, that craving was indeed the cause of your suffering, that when you come to a place of acceptance and let go of it, the suffering goes away. Now we need to, we'll get into the end of suffering next, the third truth, the permanent cessation of suffering, and the eightfold path that leads to the permanent cessation of suffering. And it's really important because what, one of the other things that you're going to learn during this practice is that is that you, as I already said, you can't always let go of the craving. So you can't always make the suffering stop. And even when you can, it doesn't stop for long. Sometimes it's only just for a very brief moment. Because the root of the suffering remains, or the root of the craving remains in place. So you can cut it off above the ground, but a few seconds later, it's put up a new shoot and the suffering comes back. So that's what we're going to look at when we get to the third truth, is, is what you have to do to achieve a permanent cessation of suffering. So what you're going to learn from this is not just that craving is the cause of suffering and that the end of craving is the end of suffering, but you're going to learn that it's more than just holding this idea in your mind intellectually as needed to make, in, to, to make any really serious, valuable use of this. It's not enough just to know it, even knowing it from your own experience. Because, after all, is it that much better to be able to go through your life seeking the cause of your suffering and then letting go of the craving just to enjoy a moment's respite. Sometimes it can be very good and very helpful. When you're experiencing, you can get good at this with physical pain. Long before you become capable of dealing with the other kinds of mental suffering, 
you can come to a place where you do not have to suffer due to physical pain. And anybody who has any sort of uh, chronic problems that, that produces persistent pain, this is the most valuable, wonderful thing that you can use to overcome the suffering that's associated with pain. But to really overcome the suffering, we're going to have to look at the third and fourth noble truths. We're going to have, there's a lot of work that's going to have to be done to get to the place where that works, where it becomes effective. Okay? So, I don't think there's any questions, right? So, let's, let's do some meditation. It's going to be guided meditation. And as a part of it, I'm going to ask you to investigate these first two truths and um, do some things that you can that you can continue to practice and use long after today. So we're going to meditate, and I know you're getting your cushions all comfortable, but I'm going to ask you to stand up. We're going to meditate standing up. feet in a comfortable position, your body fairly straight, <coughs> decide what you're going to most be most comfortable with doing with your hands. You might let them hang by your side, you might cross them in front of you, you might put them behind you. Alright, now let's begin. So close your eyes. <coughs> Take a deep breath. Let it out. And become fully present. Allow your mind to explore and your attention to touch upon external sound. feeling of the air on your skin. Feeling of the clothing touching your body. Scan your body. Don't move. Explore the sensations of your body. Direct your attention to your hands. Your 
your attention to your legs. They've probably already been asking for attention. Examine the feeling of the weight of your body pressing the soles of your feet against the floor. Notice the tension in the muscles of your legs. And I want you to examine the feelings in your legs. Identify them as pleasant or unpleasant. Painful or not. And watch your mind's reaction to the sensations that you're observing. With a mind to noticing when suffering, mental suffering arises. And I'm going to let you do this on your own for a little while. But what I want you to do is to keep exploring both the physical sensations in your mind's reaction. find suffering in the mind, see if there is even any genuine pain there or if it's just physical discomfort. Because sometimes your mind is going to suffer just because of the thought that if I keep doing this, it's going to be painful.
direct your attention to the sensations of breathing at the abdomen. Anchor your attention here. Allow the melodrama going on between your legs and mind to continue in the background. As any thoughts and emotions begin to intrude, just focus a little more closely on the sensations of the breath at the abdomen. Notice what changes when you focus your attention on the breath of the abdomen.
expand your hands, your arms, the shoulders and chest, your head. Examine the sensations present. And in particular, I want you to notice any sensations that are pleasant. And hold an awareness of those pleasant sensations. Direct your attention to the soles of your feet and examine the sensations there very carefully, categorizing the different sensations that you find as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And as you do so, continue to hold those pleasant sensations in your upper body, in your awareness even as your attention is examining the soles of your feet. mind get ahead of sensation. We want to know, is the sensation pleasant, not whether the mind thinks it might not be. Take your time with this. Your awareness of pleasant sensations in the upper body 
helps you to remind you, helps remind you of the kind of discernment you're trying to make. You want to determine that the sensations in your feet are truly pleasant, truly unpleasant, truly neutral in and of themselves. And when you're ready, I want you to examine the sensations in your legs and hips and low back in the same way, distinguishing between what is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral in itself and the mind's reaction to those sensations.
both painful and pleasant feelings in your body. And your mind reacts to all these different sensations by liking or disliking. And the actual experience in any moment is a combination of both. and do that. Generate equanimity and observe the effect that it has. Shift your attention to your nose, the gentle, neutral, or even pleasant sensations of the air moving out of your nose. Focus, focus your attention there. Let everything else happening in your body and mind happen in your peripheral awareness. Notice the effect of attention. Let go of all resistance and be with the sensations of the breath moving in and out of the nose.
sit down. No, I, I realize that probably wasn't the most pleasant meditation you've ever done in that life. But the idea is to to learn a few things. I mean, to some extent, hopefully, you verified some of the things that we talked about earlier. But one of the most important things that I hope you learned from it was that you can use your mind to explore these abstract theoretical ideas <coughs> and verify them for yourself. Work with them and discover, maybe discover some things that weren't evident just through talking about it. Does anybody have anything they'd like to say about what we just did and their experience of it? Um, so, earlier, when we were prior to doing it, mm -hmm. I had thought that, well, some of the internal experiences I have might just be as abstract as resisting, resisting. It may sound dumb, but let's go with it for a moment. And so what was nice about standing, especially toward the end, as my upper back and lower back started to really get annoyed, is I stopped thinking about resisting, resisting. <laughs> it was very nice, thank you. Thank you. Anyone else have anything they'd like to contribute? Yeah. I'm not sure it's a contribution, but it certainly did happen to me. I suffer from a condition called vasovagal syncope. Mm -hmm. One of the triggers for that is standing still. <laughs> and uh, what it does, if it happens to me, is I'll be on the floor and faint. And I spent the entire meditation in fear. In fear. Mm -hmm. No, no, and uh, wasn't quite what I was really hoping that you would experience. But <laughs> but it does illustrate the same point. It's the mind, you know, as I pointed out to you in in the beginning. <clears throat> maybe you noticed, maybe you didn't. I tried to make you aware of it. Is that is that your mind will start resisting even before anything hurts. Your mind knows that, oh, if I keep doing this, it's going to hurt. And it gets in there and wants to resist. You go and you look at the sensation, nothing wrong with that. Yes? My emotions seem closer to the surface. Mm -hmm. Standing up. Do you have any thoughts on why your emotions seem closer to the surface? when you're standing up? Well, you were guiding us through, so it may be part of that too, what we were looking at and thinking about, negative or positive reactions to the sensations. So maybe it was bringing up some of those feelings. I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people didn't have certain kinds of emotions and uh, thoughts that they give rise to coming up, you know, 
uh, this is a stupid thing, why is he making me do this? <laughs> all kinds of things like that. Yeah. So it was interesting because I spent peri uh, periods of time doing different things as you were talking, um, like following the itch and following the runny nose without uh, actually taking my hands up. At one point I felt myself wanting to itch and I said, but I'm not going to move. Yeah. And when you went, and I also have things I work on, because I work on alignment points in my structure. So for me, a big part of it was I would feel pain somewhere. I had one of my legs, and I would notice that I wasn't in relaxation. And once I put myself into my relaxation state for my body, it would go away. Mm -hmm. And and then this, okay, so for me, neutral, finding my neutral position in my body, which I don't associate with suffering or pain, but more in and young, and going through those pieces, especially when you did the foot centering, or you said, look at your foot. So I've got 10 spots on my foot that I focus on to be able to get to my empty spot in my foot and in neutral. Mm -hmm. And it was an interesting, for me, I really like that type of stuff. It was very good. But the hardest thing was not itching my nose and my mm -hmm. letting it go. It itches are an interesting kind of discomfort because you look at them and you know the word pain just doesn't seem to be appropriate but it generates a really powerful urge to do something about yeah. it and you really really want it to not be there yeah I found myself going into a frenzy of checking everything I couldn't get my attention to be stable I mm -hmm. was you know, you direct our attention, oh, look at the feet, look at this, look at that. And and I, the only, finally you spoke of equanimity and I, I, I couldn't find it anywhere. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had to settle for uh, deciding to just watch the continuous movement of checking, 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 going here, going there. And that, I don't know if that's equanimity or not, but it passed for the only stable place I had was that it wasn't going to quit moving. <coughs> yeah, well, I, I think I hear you saying that what you did was, in a sense, stopped resisting and just accepting, well, this is going to keep going on. And uh, maybe it didn't make the unpleasantness go away, but it made it much more tolerable. <laughs> well, it was entertaining because I spent the whole time that I was standing up basically riding a bronc. at times when I went to the when I noticed um, unpleasantness that my attention would go away sometimes mm -hmm. yeah well I yeah I'd like you in, in the future when you're dealing with uh, unpleasant sensations to pay attention to what your attention is doing to be aware of what your attention is doing I should say uh, you put your attention on something, and usually the the unpleasantness of it immediately becomes worse. You put focus your attention somewhere else, and it kind of fades into the background. And so, one of the strategies we naturally use is distraction. So if we can put the attention somewhere else, then, then uh, whatever it is doesn't bother us as much. 
when you put your attention on it, I don't know if you notice this or not, but when you put your attention on it, the first thing your mind does is it feels like it's supposed to be doing something with it. Yeah. Did you notice that? Yeah. And of course, if you're following the instructions, there's nothing that can be done with it except just observe it and observe your mind's reactions to it. Yes? Yeah, along those lines, I noticed that when unpleasantness arose, there's a tendency, the suffering sometimes manifested as almost like a frenzied state of mind. The mind was like scrambling to do something, and as you described, there's kind of nothing to do. So the scramble was itself both unpleasant, but it also made it harder to, you know, um, have distance from it because it, it, it kind of muddied the waters. It made it more confusing, it made it more challenging to work with. Um, the other thing that was interesting was sometimes when I'm meditating, if I get warm, and I think standing up, I wasn't prepared for how warm I would get as a result, and I was wearing my socks, and that's a bad move. Um, when that happens, I sometimes like a, kind of a mild nausea sometimes arises, and and I noticed how um, how strong of a reaction my mind had towards that specific sensation, um, and every time it would arise, it was like, oh god, you know, there's this kind of fear response, and like. Um, what was interesting though was putting awareness on that and following the process of those sensations and how repeated it was, I found that towards the end, when it started arising, I kind of, having watched it previous times, was able to follow its pattern and, and, it, and predict its pattern and it followed exactly as predicted. And there was something about that predictability that made my mind so much more at ease with it. It kind of, I think, gave my mind a sense of like, oh, I really am in control. Kind of thing, which which let off some of that fear and and, and scrambling. Okay. Yes. So a, a question: How does how with what we were doing with the standing meditation relate with the concept of if you're in the now and you're looking at what your body's doing in the now and aligning and doing that, but not wandering because you're in the now in terms of what the body's experiencing. How does that really relate to what you're talking about in pain and suffering, which is more of a not be here now because you're intellectualizing something? Yeah, when you were standing there, I'm sure you were very much in the now. And although one of the strategies the mind might employ is, as a distraction is to, is to leave the now, because the now is where the discomfort is. But, but, uh, Meditating in that way is going to bring you very much into the present. It's going to keep you there for the most part. And obviously, not everything about the present is necessarily that nice. <laughs> so it's funny, sometimes I'll read magazine articles about meditation or something, and they're talking about as if if you could only be present, everything would be wonderful. That's not really what it's about. <laughs> it's, it's about, if you can be present, you can discover what's really going on. And that's, I, I, that, that's, what, uh, that's what I'm hoping to make everybody really aware of. Meditation, meditation is training your mind so that you can can control your attention and use it effectively, and so most especially so that you have powerful mindful awareness, which will allow you to learn and discover things. And so in this practice here, you were being in the present, you were using your attention, and you were using 
mindful awareness and uh, hopefully you're investigating and discovering and this is this is really what it's about uh, even in the process of training yourself in attention and mindfulness if instead of the process just being simple simple repetition and reinforcement of one particular thing it, it can also be a, a process of discovery, a voyage of exploration. You're learning about your mind even as you're training your mind. But, yes? I have a training question. So when we were doing that, there was one place on my left shin that became, that I was going into pain with. Yes. And I'd had a little bit of sort of sensations of pain in that leg. Um, a little before it got to the point where it was really pulling my attention. And before that, it seemed like if I stayed with it, it would soften. Mm -hmm. And then the, then I wasn't in pain. But then at one point, it, it, was, it was elevated and there was pain. So at that point, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like it was a conscious voice. But there was like a voice in, that I was aware of internally that said, um, I, I don't know exactly, but I just got a sense of, it's okay, um, you know, this will pass, this will soften too. Now, is that something that is sort of productive in the process or not so much so? That's something that's very productive in the process of dealing with pain. Uh -huh. um, Yes, the, this, the suffering comes from craving and the craving is self-centered. What we usually do when we direct our attention to pain is we identify with it. We make it you know, very strongly self-centered, which only makes it worse. To the degree that you can be objective about it, not identify with it so much, it changes the quality changes your relationship to it and there's not so much of that suffering inducing craving part to it so what you were what you were doing is you were taking a more objective perspective that other voice you know was was really trying to separate you from the identification with it and allow you to be in a more objective relationship with it and that's a very important part of dealing with pain and it's part of the process by which we learn and explore and discover uh, about pain. Good news, the rest of the meditations I leave will be sitting down. <laughs> you don't have to do this anymore. Maybe that's relief. But unless you've already reached the point where you're past pain, your meditations are going to be associated with pain. And hopefully from this point on, you'll never again, approach that with dread, but rather you'll see it as an opportunity, that it's an opportunity actually not just to explore the first two noble truths, but actually all four of them, you'll see as we go along, because it's all about coming to grips with reality, and this is reality, and you sit down to meditate and you're putting yourself face to face with isness for a little while, doing your best not to disappear into fantasies of, of the future or the past or elsewhere.
So everything that happens, everything that happens is an opportunity. Everything that happens is important. So, you know, take advantage of it, learn from it. <laughs>